And here we are, January 5th, 2013, lecture discussion number 137 on the Book of Romans. And yes, uh, for the Internet folks, we're back in operation. We took a couple weeks off, and, and now we're here again. Uh, I just got told, by the way, that uh, uh, some of the lectures from 1998 are going on the Internet, and I, I feel like I have to give a disclaimer for those. Uh, I won't do it necessarily today in any uh, totality, but um, I had a different uh, goal in mind in those days. I was trying to include as many people as I could, and so occasionally I would not uh, give, um, how do I put this nicely? I wouldn't give details in those lectures that were um, um, forceful, trying to be more tender-hearted, you know. Um, And then eventually, as time wore on, and I weeded out about 78% of those folks, um, I was able to go where I wanted to go. But nonetheless, uh, uh, a supper, Dave, assures me that uh, that I did enough to drive off as many people as I normally would, and, and that, of course, is good. But um, uh, I found it interesting to listen to them and saw the difference or heard the difference in the technique that uh, I have now adopted after the last, oh, my, maybe 10, 12 years. Anyway, we've been hiding for two Sundays. Just to wrap that up, we're, uh, as we here in Alaska deal with the darkness, and as you know, each of us have our own method of dealing with the 20-some hours of darkness, and uh, some attempt to combat uh, this time of year with increased activity. They exercise, they go skiing, which is really exercise. It can't be fun if you're exhausted. They get on snow machines, and uh, they go ice fishing, and and all of that, any, any and all kinds of outdoor events. And the, and the dark cold of the winter solstice is a happy, happy time for these people. And we call those people, uh, that's right, oblivious, young. Now, the rest of us, uh, we who have endured uh, many, many such dark winters in Alaska, um, I have a different approach, or we have a different approach. I think it's more realistic and practical, and um, what I do, of course, this time of year is I eat everything in sight, and it works very well for me because I'm preparing for the impending famine. And Lori and I, uh, we combine this sitting at home, eating in the dark with um, remodeling in the winter. So we've been busy flailing away, and that's really why I took the couple weeks as much as anything with painting tile and electrical work. But very soon comes uh, the joy of uh, hardwood floor. I got seven eighths hardwood floor going in all over the whole building, and uh, nothing makes the winter go by faster than uh, uh, hitting a hardwood floor nailer 10,000 times. Anyway, all of that to say we're back. That's where we were. That's why we left. And um, days are getting longer now, so we're happy about that. What do we get, 35 seconds a day or so now? And, uh, and pretty soon it'll go up to 40 seconds a day. We're happy. When we last left off, I was wandering around gathering up all the womans. You know what I mean by that. Do you remember? I was addressing... Uh, I was addressing the fact that Christ says from the cross, God says from the cross, his third saying, Woman, behold your son. And so to solve that, what you must do is go and find every place where God says woman, 
by God, I mean Christ. Every place where Christ says woman, uh, at least there in the New Testament, that will get you started. And where we were, where I started out, if I'm correct, I have to look and make sure. I don't know if the order is, is right, but I'm pretty certain that I started out with Mary at the wedding. So that's one place that he says woman at the wedding. His first public miracle, very complicated miracle of of wine and water and all the symbolism that is there. The other place we went uh, was to the adulterous woman uh, um, that was about to be stoned. So I gathered two women, and then did I get to uh, the uh, woman at the well much last time? I don't remember. That's where I'll end up going next. Probably not really. I'll be somewhere else today. But just know that she shows up. She has the husbands, right? So I have an adulterous type uh, issue here. This is the uh, temple prostitute uh, that was about to be stoned. Now, I say a lot of things that I can defend. Like I say, the pots at the wedding were cracked pots or leaking pots that had been set aside. I say that the adulterous woman uh, was a temple prostitute uh, and things like that that I won't address, but I can defend and eventually I will. All of that is to get to the third saying where I have woman behold. Because that's what we're trying to solve, um, why he says, woman, behold your son, which is the same thing, by the way, is saying, woman, behold John. He's not talking about himself when he says son. He's talking about John. He immediately makes that obvious because he says, John, behold your mother, right? Woman, behold John. So there's no misunderstanding. So why does he attach uh, the woman uh, at the wedding to John the Apostle? Okay, so that's pretty much where we've been in uh, establishing the unity between the statements of God uh, in each of those events. <coughs> and again, I, I, it's all about woman behold thy son, woman behold John, John 19:25 through 26 is the third saying of God from his cross during his crucifixion. So you know it has great significance. He has seven sayings. This is the third one, and it is the complement to John 2. Here we have John 2 right here. So what I mean by that is that I have a question at, at uh, John 2, and that question, if you remember, the, is uh, what have I to do with you? John 2, 4. So Mary asks him to do something, and he says, woman, what have I to do with you? Or some would, uh, some would like this, if I could done this way, uh, they would say, woman, what to me and to you? Or woman, what is your concern to me? Uh, you'll see all of those written, but I want you to know that John 2.4 and John 19.25 and 26 are directly connected. So the question that he asks Mary, he answers from the cross, and that's the third saying. What did you do to that baby, Jonas? I had to make sure and identify which baby it was. Okay. Again, let me repeat that. When Christ, when Mary comes to Christ, 
And he asks her, Woman, what to me and to you? Or woman, what is your concern to me? Or woman, what have I to do with you? The first one, what have I to do with you, um, has a great deal of strength. When you start going through these things in different translations, um, always, always, always have your old King James. If you do, you will, you will have a very good foundational spot to be, and you can then go to the context and figure it out. I recognize all the, all the discussions about all the translations. Um, if the King James, I know it's difficult for people. Um, that is one of the reasons that I, I don't utilize it as much as I would like. I try to slip it in as I can. But um, as long as you have it uh, to compare with at all times, you'll, and you know that the context is so important, you will solve everything. And if you're always looking for Christ, you will figure out what is really supposed to be there, whether or not it is smote or struck. For example, in uh, Exodus, it is smote because it's a picture of Christ. It's killed, not struck. So all of that thing is very important. But my point is is that he asks the woman, he identifies her as woman, woman, what have I to do with you? Um, that is answered with woman, behold your son, or behold John. So I have the question in 2.4. I have the answer in 1925-26. So if you've got that, we're in good shape. Obviously, this is going to take a lot of time to resolve this, but just putting those passages together that I put on the board here, the wedding, the third saying, the woman at the well, and the woman to be stoned, just putting those four is a monumental problem, and it's going to, those four will take us a long time. I'm going to add a fifth one today, so I get all five of them in, worked out for me because of other issues, uh, so I just thought we'll do it, but I've got other things for you to think about. I have, you have the, uh, the, what I call the five fingers. Not really, it's just my way of doing it. You know, I come up with, I remember I taught high school once, and I had to come up with different ways to get them to remember things, so this is what I did. I said five fingers, I've stuck with it for all these years. The five fingers, I have, God wrote the tablets, right? So I have the tablets. He hand wrote them. If you found the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, that's his handwriting. He uh, has the writing on the wall, correct? In Daniel. He has the writing in the dust. In John 8, 6. So there are your five times that he writes. You're counting all five, aren't you? Those are five. You're not thinking that I made a mistake. You would know better than that. How many times did he write on the tablets? Exodus, what, 32? Yeah, I have two tablets. I have to write twice. How many times did he write in the dust? Two times. So I have two dusts. 
So those are the five fingers. Why do I bring up right now uh, Exodus 32 and 34, the two tablets, John 8, 6, Daniel 5, John 8, 8. There's your references. Why do I bring up the fact that he has written five times? What does that have to do with my woman's? Okay, I'm writing in the dust with which woman? The one about to be stoned, right? I want to know what he's writing in the dust. Because he they're trying to stone this woman. They think they've got him trapped. I want to know something. What do I want to know? I want to know what he wrote. How do I figure out what he wrote? I go find... Other places that he wrote stuff. And there I have my five fingers. In order to solve the woman being stoned. In order to solve what? What woman means so that I can figure out why he said, woman, behold your son, the third saying of the cross. Does that make any sense? You're looking at me like you usually do. Obviously, if we connect all of the direct writings of God by direct, in his handwriting, by his hand, obviously, if I connect or collect all of those uh, writings, I can cast tremendous light on what he wrote and when he wrote it and why he wrote it. And I especially could solve what he wrote in the dust. I got a, uh, an email from a lady. I can't remember. I wish I could. I'm sorry. I had lots of emails during the last two weeks. Some of them were fantastic, and as they all are. And, and I appreciate it, you folks that are doing that. It encourages me, to say the least. Uh, I'm just sorry that I'm so overwhelmed I can't get to you uh, right now, and um, I'm just doing the best I can, barely. My point is is that uh, she had an issue. She was trying to solve what he wrote in the dust, and I... I knew that I'm coming up to this sermon, or today, this lecture today, and I'm hoping she's listening. And this is how you solve what he, she had her own idea. This is how you solve that. Because when he writes, he either wrote the same thing. Do you think he wrote the same thing every time? You know he didn't, because you know the writing on Daniel on the wall is different from the tablets. Uh, and therefore, we can assume that the writing in the dust is different from the tablets and different from Daniel. And did he write the same thing each time in the dust? He did write both the same thing with the tablets. So I can figure out what he wrote in the dust by combining all of that, and it'll make one a very extraordinary picture. So we'll uh, we'll do that. He writes twice in the dust. Why did he write twice? What did he write? What did it look like when he's writing it? The supper day was telling me about a movie. I don't, I don't watch movies uh, very often, if ever. Uh, I, and I can't even remember the last movie I watched. I couldn't. Uh, we were trying to play a game uh, um, at my house uh, with the kids, and uh, by kids I mean 30-year-olds. Um, and they asked me what movie. I went to last. I had no idea. I could remember kind of what it was about, but I had no idea what the name of it is. I don't go to movies, but apparently there's a movie that shows Christ writing in the dust, and it is some powerful thing depicted. Uh, Light or flame coming out of his hand or something. I don't know. But I want to know what it looked like, because I want to know if it was frightening. 
He had to stoop down, it said. How much did he stoop? What does stoop down mean? Why did he stoop down? Could he have written from up here? He could have. But he wants to get his finger in the dirt. So that's important that his finger is there. Why? Was it, as I said, frightening? Did people go, oh my goodness. He's doing something that is extraordinary. And he did it twice. What did the old men, why this difference between the old men who dropped their stones first and then the young men? So we've got a great deal to deal with just what I've put on the board, and that's always the case here, um, as you know. But I don't have time to get to all of that today. I just want to raise it for you so that you know what's coming and you can start to work on your own without me. <clears throat> what, is, what happens all the time this year when I hide at Christmas time, many things come bubbling up, oozing to the surface, so to speak, and, and I get my usual request to deal with them. Um, and it's interesting because I have a limited perspective about a lot of it, but they still want me to do it. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll go ahead and take care of it today. Years ago, I used to call this kind of thing when I do it in the lectures, I call this section of the lecture, if you will, things that I learned from televangelists. And I thought that was clever, but there arose two problems from that. One problem was people really thought that it was actually possible to learn something from televangelists. And I didn't want to convey that. And so my attempt at subtle humor there fell to the ground with its usual thud. And number two, the East Coast media began to see themselves as authority in biblical interpretation. That's rare in, that's new in my, I should say rare, that's new in my lifetime. When I was a young man, nobody in the journalistic media thought that they had any biblical knowledge at all. And they were right. No one in that, in that area thought that they had any opinion, any valid opinion on anything doctrinal. And they were right. And that's not the case now. The East Coast media, for sure, has begun to see themselves as authority in biblical interpretation. How do you think they're doing? They're completely inept. But they're in such an echo chamber, such a bubble, that they don't even know. Everyone they talk to tells them they're brilliant. That's a very bad spot to be in. You, you really do need, that's one of the advantages of the Internet, as you know. Uh, the nickname that I have on the Internet is Ranting Idiot. And they're not hesitant at all to tell me. Um, and so I appreciate uh, the challenges that I get. Of course, as you know, I never lose. Never. <laughs> That'll get somebody to write me right there. It's like fishing. Anyway, this new phenomenon of the East Coast media being wholly unprepared to say anything, but yet eager to do it, uh, no hesitancy to express the most ignorant of opinions. It's amazing. So I had to rename the section. I can't call it televangelists anymore, and I really can't say things I learned from Hollywood. I used to say that. But now it's really the entire media conglomerate. So this is things that I learned from the entire uh, media conglomerate or uh, 
or organization, big media, I guess you would call it. The fact that they are commenting on these things is fascinating to me. It's never better illustrated by the recent controversy. Uh, there's a show, apparently, that, again, I, I don't watch it. Um, um, people suggest that I do, but I really don't know much about it. Having never seen it, I don't have uh, the, uh, the cable package, if you will, that uh, we have the cheapest one possible, and it doesn't allow us to see this particular show, but it's something about um, dynasties and, and ducks. Uh, okay? So we have a controversy because of, of somebody, and I would, I'm not even going to try to tell you uh, what they said because I'm not really sure. But I just know the controversy was there. It's 1 Corinthians 6. Now, I know that 1 Corinthians 6 is very, very complicated. Uh, uh, Bill the Cow addressed it in the, uh, in the elder minutes slightly. It's very, very complicated. It's the know ye nots. I don't have room to put it on the board. The know ye nots. And so whatever you're going to talk about, what 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 through 15, or all of 1 Corinthians 6, uh, frankly, you have to know, if you prefer, not, if you don't like the know ye nots, he is also, do you not know? Uh, and if I asked you this, that's the same way, I guess you could say either one, the know ye nots is the way I learned it, but do you not know? If I, or the do you not knows. If, if I asked you, do you not know, what am I implying? I'm implying that you don't know it. Or you certainly aren't considering it. That's First Corinthians 6. Paul asked that question, do you not know, six times in First Corinthians 6. The overwhelming implication is, is that they had no clue. And that's the Holy Spirit through Paul. And he asks the Corinthians lots of questions. He bombards them. He's blasting away at them. He buries them in questions. Remind you of anyone? Now you know where I get stuff like that, right? Why does he do that? Why does he essentially take a shovel and smash the Corinthians over and over and over again with it. Here's your place to participate. Why would he do it that way? Because they are a mess. An absolute, total meltdown mess. that They have become completely dysfunctional. As some scholars suggest that they... They know they're saved, and so they think, well, we're saved now. We can literally do anything, and we're going to be saved. And they, in fact, they thought that time was short, that Christ was returning quickly, and may even be there in the next couple of days, so let's go ahead and just bury ourselves in anything and everything we can, from drugs to anything, name it. And so that's what they think. And uh, we'll, we'll discuss whether or not that's a possibility, but uh, you'll find that's the most common opinion. So here in 1 Corinthians 6, there is this question after question after question that Paul is asking them. And the chapter is almost non-stops que questions. 
And verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 6 sums it up, sums up the problem the best. He says this, Paul says, I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? And the answer is, apparently not. In the church of Corinth, there is not one wise man. None. They're devoid. So what was going on here in the church of Corinth? I've heard this. This has just always astonished me. Uh, this is a test. People come to me and they say, what, what should I do? I'm in a new city and I'm looking for a church. Do not find one or go to one that advertises themselves as modeled after the church of Corinth. You'll hear that on the radio here. We are a Corinthian-based church. Really? That's your goal, huh? I've heard them brag and advertise that they're Corinthian churches. Which means that you have not one wise man in your church and you are almost with no doctrinal truth and you're filled to the brim with, uh, with perversion, immorality, child molestation. That's what they were known for. That's your goal. Chaos. Now, before we read the verses in question, it caused so much uh, overflow, if uh, the, the spewing out of illiteracy, if you will. Uh, just to give you an example, one of the news, uh, one of the Fox News. I'll go ahead so they can get the uh, the benefit of it. One of the Fox News commentators screamed out. That the Bible was wrong on creation and wrong on judgment. He said, I, I'm so, he's so angry that the Christian church was wrong on creation and wrong on judgment, specifically the Bible. And what he meant was, is that he was certain that evolution was absolute truth and that the Bible was not the authority on what is sin and what is not sin. And should be completely disregarded in the fact that the definition for sin of sin was up for debate. And apparently he arrived at this position because of Duck Dynasty in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Anyway, that, that doesn't surprise me. I shouldn't say it does. I'm used to this kind of stuff. I, I know it's an emotional response when I hear stuff like that. But it occurs to me that the willingness to say things, I would not tell, if I'm riding in an airplane, I do not have any compunction to go to the pilot and tell him that I should fly now. It doesn't occur to me to do that. Or if I see a baby, it never occurs to me to go and tell the mother um, what we should do with the baby next. In fact, I'm in full flight the other direction have been as long as I can remember. What it is about people who read the Bible and think they can figure it out um, and, and then go and, and uh, in front of as many people as you can, millions of people in the case of this gentleman, and say things about it is fascinating. That's a, an interesting attribute that I don't possess and I don't think I ever have. But I certainly recognize it when I see it. A, a completely incoherent uh, opinion and the willingness, however, to overcome that and shout it from the rooftops. I find that fascinating behavior. 
So let's cover this a little bit. Let's go through the six of the know ye nots, or do you not know? I'll read them for you, but they're First Corinthians 6, and I'll just pick them out. First one is verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you know that? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? What kind of angels, by the way? We'll just make this one easy. You're going to judge the fallen angels. Why? It's, by the way, has something to do with those who have seen and those who have not seen. The fallen angels saw everything, and yet they still fell. The ones who did not see everything will judge the ones that did. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How is it that we're going to judge them, by the way? What's that mean? We're definitely going to be at the trial. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Those are the six do you not know of 1 Corinthians 6. So if you're going to have an opinion on 1 Corinthians 6, especially 9, uh, 11, 12, then you better know that there are six of those do not do you not knows in there. And Paul asked these questions and others because why? As I said, I think he asked them because nobody at Corinth knew. There was not one wise man. They had no answers. But worse, they didn't even know what the questions meant. And that's that human behavior that I find so interesting. If you don't even understand the meaning of the question, why are you so anxious to answer it? I would at least say, hey, I'm going to sit here and hope I can bluff my way through. I'm not going to stand up and shout that I know the answer when I don't even know, understand what the question means. And to be fair, those six questions are very difficult, complex questions. They're about judgment. They're about fallen angels. How did angels fall? Why did they fall? Obviously, they have will. Where did their will come from? Obviously, it is given to them, just like it is given to everyone who has will. How much will did they have? How much did they see? What did they fall? Uh, what made them fall? What was the lie of Satan that convinced them they could fall. What is the relationship to what's going on at Corinth? Did you see how I made that connection so quickly? Paul said fallen angels in Corinth have a relationship. How did he get there? The five facet kingdoms of God. When he said inherit the kingdom of God, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You've got to know which kingdom he's talking about. He's got five of them, God does. He has the universal kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the theocratic kingdom, the messianic kingdom, and the mystery kingdom. There's five of them. Which kingdom does he mean here? And then, he, uh, uh, then the, the mystery of the church is in there. And one of those questions, the tabernacle, Genesis 2.24, the one flesh, the tabernacle of Moses. He is saying, don't you recognize that your body has a, has a relationship to the tent of Moses? In other words, it's designed the same. You have a holy of holies in you where the Holy Spirit is. And the Holy Spirit is given to you and placed there. 
Remember? Whom you have from God. So, and, and you are not your own anymore. The Holy Spirit is in you. You have a, a relationship, a physical uh, representation, if you will, of the tent of Moses. So you have an altar, you have a holy of holies, you have all these gates. Uh, there's been tremendous work done on how it is that we represent or have this relationship with the, uh, the tabernacle of Moses. Then there's eternal security in there. Did you see that? It's in one of those questions. Much, much more, of course. And no one at Corinth understood the questions nor knew the answers. And they had unanimous ignorance. Everyone at Corinth answers no in unison. No one knows. Not one wise man. Exactly like our news media today. They don't know the questions. They don't know how complex they are. They don't know the answers. Anyway, I'm getting a little bogged down, so I'm going to pick up some speed here. Let's read 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 9 through 10. This, this, uh, these verses that caused all of this issue. And I don't really know what the issue is so much. I just know that it was caused. And I find this interesting when I see it. I'm, I'm actually grateful that the, the, the issue was caused because what should it be when we have an issue like this? We should have this wonderful opportunity from the church to get up and explain what it really means. And everybody ought to go, wow, that is really something. Now, that's not happening. And it, uh, again, why is it that happening? But let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know? See, it's one of the one of the not knows. If you're going to answer this, if you think you're going to have an opinion on it, great. But you need to remember that there's five others of them. And they form a whole. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor catamites, nor men, male homosexuals is what that word means. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, which means haters of God, nor extortioners, will enter the kingdom of God. Ask yourself immediately, what were the extortioners extorting? Who's he talking about there? This is a brilliant... Uh, there, there isn't anybody like Paul. This is a brilliant man who knows his Old Testament better than any other person perhaps that's ever lived. And so when he makes a statement, he's referring to something in the Old Testament. So you have to go look up every single one of those, find where the complement is in the Old Testament, and find out why he included them in this list. And by the way, who's left out? Look at the list. Are you in there? Don't raise your hand. But look suspiciously at the person next to you. Okay. Obviously, murderer is not there. Isn't that interesting? Why isn't murderer there? Because Paul is a what? He's a murderer. A very violent killing machine, as a matter of fact. A torturer. Or he was. That's what it is. That becomes obvious here in a minute. 
Now, everyone, almost everyone, it's a general statement. And general statements have, uh, are general statements because they possess an element of truth to them, a mathematical element. Now, uh, almost everyone that does this, verse 9 and 10, they selectively pluck out these two verses and then they stop because they want to pursue an agenda that pleases them uh, generally. But you can't stop there. If you stop there, you've got barely, you've barely got half of the, of the equation. You've got to keep going. So we have to finish and we have to read verse 11. So I'm going to go back so that verse 11 really has the power it deserves. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be fooled. So what's that mean in Corinth? I had a bunch of fooled people. Neither fornicator, by the way, he gives his list. Who do you think you know, the list applies to? Did he just say, well, I'll just throw a bunch of things out? No. He knew his audience. That's why I always kind of go, I kind of have a half chuckle, half cry when I hear churches. We want to be like Corinthians. Okay, here we go. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor academites, nor homosexual men, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were saved in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what did he say about that list? What's that? Yes, exactly right. You're not going to inherit the, the you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, which kingdom? You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But some of you were washed, sanctified, saved. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means the people he is writing to had those characteristics. That's who they were. And now what are they? They're saved people. Everybody on that list can be washed, can be saved, will be washed, will be saved. Paul wrote to the Romans, remember this part, by the way, you have to know, there is none righteous, no, not one. That, and such were some of you. Some of you were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, catamites, male homosexual, thieves, coveters, drunkards, haters, revilers of God, extortioners. Which one's the worst? Usually when people vote for the worst, they vote for the one that's uh, not them. (laughs) And remember, Paul himself was a reviler of God. He hunted down and killed Christians, Jewish Christians. And, and, And look at how it says, and 
And such were some of you. Some of you were what? The whole list. Everything on the list. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. Which means you go, you're going in a new direction. But you were saved. Do not be deceived. Salvation requires that you be washed. Salvation requires the blood of Christ. The good news is everyone on that list can be saved. No exceptions. Church of Corinth proved it. And what's really exciting for us is that God is willing to do it. Not only is he able, but he is willing but do not be deceived. You must be washed. You can be on the list, but you will not inherit the kingdom of God unless you are washed. That's what he's saying. Is that good news? That's fantastic news. Who could be mad about that? Well, apparently the whole country. And that, by the way, is the central point of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. You must be washed. But now, we've got to solve verse 12. And eventually, I have to keep going here. I'll come back to this. I've got to watch my time today because I've got other places I want to go. Because I've got to get back to my women list here. But let me just throw 12 out here for you because this is the way you understand what we just went through. All things are lawful for me. Paul is saying, all things are lawful for me. What's he mean by that? But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. And then he goes on to talk about immorality. What does it mean? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Hey, that's, by the way, the... Uh, the the, the solution, if you will. He's saying to, uh, really quickly, uh, I will not be brought under the power of sin. It will not have mastery over, to, over me. Thank you. But all things are lawful for me. What's he mean? Remember I told you that eternal security was on this list. There it is. What does this Pharisee slash murdering Saul, now Paul, mean by this? And this Old Testament genius scholar led by the Holy Spirit selects out this list. He selects out uh, Genesis 2.24 with the one flesh and the harlot and all of that. Uh, and he asks these six related questions. Um, and all of this is here. And trying to understand 1 Corinthians 6 without asking why ch Paul chooses what he chooses will lead to flawed conclusions, as is, as is the case uh, today from those who don't even read it, much less understand what the questions are. Next on the list of things getting massacred by those who rush forward to proclaim themselves Bible experts is Matthew 26:11. So that's where we really are. Now we're going to start the sermon. And that is a joke, really, for the Internet audience because the rest of you don't believe me anymore.
But let's read Matthew 26, uh, 1 through 16. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's very important. Underline delivered for me so that you know Judas didn't betray him. The delivered theme is what that is. You can't, you can't betray an omniscient God or the omniscient God. Then the chief priest, you can deliver him. He can use you to deliver him. Then the chief priest, because the word is interchangeable, as you know, deliver and betrayed. And most of the time it's uh, translated betrayed, but it actually means delivered when it's applied to God. Have the correct context, and you don't have to worry so much about your Bible translation. You do still need to. That's why I tell you, get the King James. Read it. Train yourself to read it. But understand, the context is delivered, not betrayed. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at... And Christ even says it. I'm getting bogged down on that, aren't I? Makes me mad, that's why. Christ said this. You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priest, and he says it over and over again. Then the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. They're going to trick omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God. That makes great sense, doesn't it? That's a statement of idiocy. Trickery and kill him. You can't kill him. He's God. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany, and now here is today's lecture starting now. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him. Aha! I have a woman to add to my list now. I put all the women together. I figure out that third saying. A woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. It's something, by the way, that's common in that culture. They anoint the honored guest. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. This, by the way, is called the Judas Rebellion. You have to go to John 12 to put this together. You'll find all the places where this is listed in the in Scripture, Luke 22, Mark 14. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Now, here is the statement that uh, uh, that is so misunderstood today. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? He actually says, so I have, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always. Remember, this is God himself saying this. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. And most people will say, okay, they're going to be poor all the time. Uh, nothing we can do about it. Uh, we gotta just let that kind of go. And we gotta, uh, we just have a short period of time with the omnipresent creator of time, God in the flesh himself. 
That's how they, they don't add that last part. Does it mean that? No. Doesn't mean that. It has something to do with the other four women. Collect the women, figure out what it really means. By the way, it's an answer to a question. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. God is saying that. That is an extraordinary statement. Don't make the mistake of thinking that's simple. That is not simple. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Did she know she was doing it for his burial? No, I don't think she did. She did it to honor him as an honored guest, which was traditional. The evidence is that she had it in this extraordinary expensive vase, and she broke the vase and poured this oil. you got a lot of questions, don't you? What is the oil? What is the composition of the oil? Where did she get it? How much does it cost? Where does it come from? Who did she intend to use it for? For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. That's news to her, by the way, and everybody else. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. She has a memorial forever. She did something fantastic. Okay? Now, hopefully you notice that Jesus said this woman. I emphasized it as much as we can. So we collect it with the other womans and we add it to our previous womans and we have now five womans to deal with here. And notice again that God himself says, verse 13, have a note to reread it. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told. That's amazing. We're going to deal, do justice. I hope I can do justice to what she did. Because it is fantastic. And obviously we got to read John 12 to get the full context uh, and Luke 22 and Mark 14. This is a very important passage because God says this woman did something that is to be memorialized. What do you do now? You go and find out all the other women that did something to be memorialized. You go find all the other people that did something to be memorialized. He, God raises this up, this act by um, uh, Mary, of Mary and Martha. And there, you know, immediately you see there's two women there. Uh, he memorializes Mary, not Martha. And Judas is prominent in this event because he attacks Mary. As soon as you go to John 12... Judas is the one that asks the question. I should probably do that. I know I'm crushed on time here. But let me get this out so at least it's in the record. Judas, one of his disciples, Judas, who would deliver him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold? And he causes the rest of the disciples to respond the same way. You saw that in Matthew 26. He asks that question, why was this oil not sold? Don't pour it on Christ. Now, you have to recognize, I have Judas now and God. 
side by side, and Judas asked God a question. Is it an easy question? No. It's a very, think Pharisees. It's the same thing. It's a trick. It's a trap. And Judas has thought it through. He is unbelievably evil, unbelievably complicated, unbelievably intelligent. He is the leader of the apostles. The evidence is clear. They all rebel as he leads them to rebel. And so, he attacks the woman. He leads the attack. The other disciples join in the attack and God defends the woman. God defends the woman. That should help you. It should help you figure out what's going on. Lazarus is there. He's alive because he's been resurrected. Simon the leper is there. He's been cleaned and he has his house back. Okay? There's incredible, mysterious elements and God has placed them all together. A resurrected Lazarus, a cleansed leper, Mary and Martha, oil, Judas. All placed together here and it's astonishing. The connections and the amazing complexity. Again, I can't overemphasize. God and Judas have this incredible exchange. Judas asks a question and God answers his question. Let me repeat the question. Why was this fragrant oil not sold? What's the answer? The answer to that question is, you will have poor always. Me, you will not have always. See? That's the, that's that. Now it's easy. You got it, right? Judas asked that question. The answer is you will have four always. Me, you will not have always. And this is the first time we think that Judas finally publicly attacks. And Christ has been waiting for him. Because Christ is who? The creator of Judas. He's omniscient God. And God and Judas exchange these statements. Judas asks the question and Christ answers. Okay? Now, with all of that, our unjustifiably confident media pulls out, uh, you will have poor. Let me read it exactly right so that I don't depend on my memory skills, of which I have very few. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. That's his answer to Judas's question. The media pulls that out and assigns meaning to it and divorces it completely from the question of Judas. How possible is it they're going to get the right understanding of it? No possibility. And they assign meaning to it that ignores the woman with the oil that's memorialized. Again, Lazarus and Simon the leper, the Passover, Judas, Zechariah 11. Why Zechariah 11? Because if I read 14, then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? He doesn't say betray. He can't betray him. It's God. I'll deliver him to you. Delivery theme all in the Bible. Got to know that. And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. What's that? That's Zechariah 11. So I gotta figure out where Zechariah 11 fits into this. Why does she trouble the woman? 
God answers to Judas. Why do you trouble the woman? God answers to Judas. For she has done a good work for me. But you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. What's he mean by that? So ask the obvious questions as I'm running out of time. Am I completely out of time? The answer is yes. What does God mean by poor? What does God mean by always? Why is the burial of Christ so significant? She did it for my burial. Not to honor me. She did it for my burial. How is it connected to the oil? What does the silver mean to God? What does the oil mean to God? What does the burial mean to God? What does the pouring mean to God? What is the purpose of the burial oil? What's it made of? By the way, it's spikenard. Where do you get spikenard? India. Why do I have this oil from India? What's it stored in? As I said, it's in a special, very expensive container that she broke. What's the purpose of the anointing? Why the fragrance? Okay, I'll give you some help. You have the poor always. Is the same as saying, I am God. You do not have me always. Is the same as saying, I am God. He declares his deity to Judas's question. Now, you do not have me always. When do you not have God? Do we have God always now? When comes a time when we don't have God? Who is the people that don't have him? When do they not have him? Who are the poor? Next week, we'll get all of that done and wrap that up for you. In the meantime, as usual, you are on your own. Let's rise and be dismissed.